Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. There's a lot of news in the last, what, 24, 36 hours about the new Tesla 3, the electric vehicle, the new car, the new uh, vehicle from Elon Musk. And uh, I was reading a story actually before this came out. Paul Dreesen on townhall.com in his article, Tesla Battery, Subsidy and Sustainability Fantasies, writes when Tesla's subsidies were eliminated in recent months in Hong Kong and Denmark, their sales plummeted to nearly zero. Well, the question is, are, is the EV phenomenon for real or is it really just all about taxpayer money going to something that's at least at this time and its evolution, pie in the sky. There is a whole quick-charging network apparently going to be put in place between Manitoba and Ontario on the Trans-Canada Highway. Nowhere else in Canada, but between Manitoba and Ontario, or Ontario and Manitoba, on the TCH Trans-Canada Highway. Paul Dreesen is the Senior Policy Analyst for the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, cfact.org. He's the author of Eco-Imperialism, Green Power, Black Death. Paul, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Roy. It's my pleasure. So we, we have this Tesla 3, just been rolled out to much fanfare. Elon Musk is predicting a challenging time manufacturing all the cars on order, if I understand him correctly. And I read yesterday that the CEO of Royal Dutch Shell, the oil company, has said all his future cars will have an EV component. He's planning on buying a hybrid Mercedes S500. I want to come back to that information for your thoughts after we speak about your article which a listener sent and which appeared on townhall.com. The justification for the EV introduction and rollout was initially internal combustion engines polluting too much, as you pointed out. Now it's climate change, but you also point out that the plug-in EVs account for barely 0.15% of the 1.4 billion vehicles on the road. Would you be able to give us some perspective on on what that really means with with all of this uh, anticipation and excitement over the uh, Tesla 3? Yeah, it's really hard to figure out where this is going to go because so much of it is going to depend on what kinds of subsidies and other gimmies the government is going to provide in Canada, the United States, Denmark, Hong Kong, or wherever you're going to try to buy these cars. Um, The federal government in the U.S. was giving Tesla $7,500 rebates for every car they sold so the buyer would really reduce his outlay by $7,500. That's going to phase out over the next few months uh, for Tesla. So California's stepping up. They're going to pass a $3 billion uh, subsidy program for electric cars, mostly for Tesla out in California, it looks like. And the question is, are we going to do this across the board? Right now, up to, up to this point in the United States, the richest 20% of all Americans got 90% of the hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer subsidies that have been doled out for electric cars. So they're the only ones, they're the only ones then who, to whom 
the electric car that may have a range of 100 or 200 miles makes sense because they've got a they've got a stable of vehicles and they know they're going to get this subsidy that's paid for by the perhaps lower end of the socioeconomic taxpayer scale. And uh, and so with the subsidies, they buy the cars. But for the person who's at the bottom end, it means nothing. Right. Exactly. I mean, the, even the thirty five thousand dollar new Tesla that they're talking about is basically twice as expensive as the gasoline-fueled version of the same basic car in terms of what it can do. And it'll go a lot farther. Um, And if you do the recharging often enough on those batteries, they're going to wear out in a few years, and you've got to replace the whole battery pack, and that's maybe $10,000. So it's a real costly venture. And as you say, if you're rich enough, you're one of those billionaires, then you can have a whole stable of cars and you use your little Tesla when you want to run around and be nice and green to your neighbors or you only have a short trip around town. But taking it on a longer trek is pretty difficult. Um, the other thing that you got into a minute ago was setting up these free charging stations along highways or here in the States. They've got them in a lot of municipal parking lots and elsewhere. Um the Tesla owners, the EV owners, are not paying for those, and a lot of places they get the charge for free. Palo Alto in California, where Tesla is headquartered, used to charge nothing. They put in the uh, charging stations and then charge nothing whatsoever to go and charge your car every day. Now they're finally going to start charging 23 cents a kilowatt hour, which is above the 19 cents a kilowatt hour that the average Californian pays for electricity, but it's still well below what they're really costing to have this uh, charging station in those garages. And then the other thing that they get here in the U.S., in a lot of places, is free access to HOV lanes. So the lanes may require you to have three people in a car if you're driving a gasoline-powered car, but if you're driving your subsidized Tesla, then you get to go on the uh, lanes for free, even if there's only one person, you the driver, in the car. So there's so many things that are propping up the sales and trying to make it look like these are green vehicles, which from my analysis is not the case. But it really makes you wonder what the future of electric vehicles actually is going to be. I'd like to I talk to you. Think I'd, I'd, all I'd... these subsidies are sustainable. Mike. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Well, I'm not uh, fundamentally against electric vehicles. I just don't know why they're suddenly so necessary. And as you point out in the article, one of the maybe the first reason given was that the internal combustion engine was so polluting. Well, now internal combustion engines run extremely cleanly, and uh, the as you pointed out, the, the the creation of electric vehicles requires a tremendous amount of subsidizing by the taxpayer. So what's what's the rush in 2030, 2040? Many governments are are indicating or have already passed legislation that uh, will prohibit the sale of pure diesel or pure gasoline vehicles. They'll have to, at the very least, be hybrid. There's a tremendous rush to get these vehicles on the road. Why? Yeah, you know, I've got nothing against EVs either, uh, but I don't understand the rush either. Uh, They keep talking about climate change, but we can get into some of those details in a few minutes if you want. I don't see the massive destructive climate change is actually taking place outside my window in the real world. I see them when I go to Al Gore's movie or I listen to some of the alarmist scientists. But the amounts of 
raw materials that are required to be dug out of the ground for these lithium cobalt batteries. Um, they're coming from places that are ecological wastelands in Baotou, China area, or in the Democratic Republic of China, of Congo, I mean, where families, entire families are out there digging in the dirt and digging out these very toxic and radioactive metals. Uh, the whole families ultimately get sick and die from all of that, and this is supposed to be sustainable and ecological, ecologically friendly and healthy for America, healthy for the world, healthy for Canada. I don't see any of that in the reality of where these metals come from, what has to go, the processes you have to go through to, to convert the ores into the metals and put them into the batteries and so forth. Then what do you do with disposing of them? They, they're pretty toxic again at that point. Um, so the bottom line is all the justifications given for having these make no sense. The costs are extremely high. Uh, and we haven't even gotten into the question of how much electricity we're going to have to be generating mm -hmm. in order to to feed the charging stations. I did some number crunching on that based on some work that Mark Mills, who's a, one of the more brilliant technology people out there, and bottom line is if you were to take all the vehicles that we have in the world right now and turn them into electric vehicles and you take all the electricity that we're generating now from fossil fuels and you generate it with wind turbines and solar panels and then try to feed those electric vehicles, you're going to need something on the order of you take all the electric lithium battery factories right now, you would need all their output for 1,250 years to provide enough battery storage for one day of all that electricity that we're talking well, it about. It sounds eminently doable to me. Or you have to have 1,250 times more factories. Yeah, doesn't that sound doable to you? <laughs> yeah, in the fantasy lands of Hollywood, it can always be done, or Al Gore's fantasy lands, but not in the real world that you and I are forced to live yeah. in. Now, I have about two and a half minutes here. What's the big picture objective? Wealth transfer? As in climate change arguments generally, young people are learning to despise Western nation success and they feel great shame for having the time to complain instead of working 18 hours a day for horrid wages, I guess. Well, what's the big picture rationale, do you think? Well, when you look at the climate change people, the activists in the United Nations and elsewhere, they have come right out and said they've got several objectives that protecting the environment is has nothing to do with climate change anymore what they're really after is number one getting rid of capitalism and replacing it with some sort of a centralized un directed economic system second is to transfer the world's wealth and resources from the countries that have it now to the countries that don't have it and then tell the poor developing countries what level of industrialization and development they will be permitted to have down the road a few years. All right. So if we so, then, if we look at uh, what's going on, uh, extrapolate maybe from what we've talked about, the uh, internal combustion engine will be history because it's going to be legislated out of existence almost or entirely. The uh, electric vehicle is the, uh, the future, however, the future requires so much subsidy or subsidizing that nobody will be or very few people will ultimately be able to afford them if this formula continues that's in place now. So the uh, so we'll all be back to horses. I mean, I'm not trying yeah, to be funny, the but... part of it is that they want everything to go wind and solar. Yeah, and yeah. you cannot possibly have enough wind turbines or solar panels to run 
EVs plus all the other electrical wow. uses that we have today. Um, another one of my colleagues did a quick number crunch on the back of an envelope, and he says that if we were to trans uh, to generate our current electricity with wind turbines, we would need wind turbines basically covering all of North America twice over. We <laughs> need 830 million wind turbines just to replace the electricity right. we're using today. Paul Dreesen, thank you so much for the time. You're welcome. It's good talking to you. I'll call you again. Thank you. Paul Dreesen. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. All right. Um, There's another police raid which removed fentanyl from the streets of Edmonton. That got a lot of uh, attention. But I keep asking myself, what are these stories of police raids removing fentanyl and illegal opioids from the streets have to do with what's happening to millions, millions, and millions of chronic pain patients in North America. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 110 or 111 million chronic pain patients in the United States, and maybe uh, two or three million, uh, maybe more, could uh, million, million, between million and three million, I don't know what the exact number is, in Canada. But anyway, these people are suffering, as you've heard, from tremendous and debilitating chronic pain that doesn't allow them to do anything with their lives. They, they just have no quality of life. Many are considering suicide. We've heard them say that. Some have committed suicide increasingly. I've heard from doctors who've told me and emailed me that doctors they know who are involved in pain management are talking among themselves about an increase in the number of chronic pain patients who are committing suicide. Now, what do you think the chances that is uh, are that that is connected to withholding their medications and driving their pain levels up. What do you think the, the chances are that there's a connection? You need to go back and listen to my interview with the Canadian health minister, Dr. Jane Philpott, June 3rd. Let's go to the Roy Green Show page on any of the websites of the chorus radio stations that carry this program. June 3rd, I interviewed the federal health minister. They wanted to talk to me to set me straight on the issue of chronic pain. Anyway, the uh, the minister didn't have any answers, but she kept saying my questions were fabulous. Marvin Ross writes on health for HuffPost Canada. His most recent column is uh, politicians should stay out of health care. Hi, Marvin. Hi, Roy. Good to have you back. Yeah, thank you for having me. Dr. Lynn Webster, past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. Dr. Webster prescribes opioids as necessary. His film online is thepainfultruth.com. Dr. Webster was uh, investigated by the DEA in the United States for four years before they just packed up and left because they realized he was only doing what he's supposed to do, and that's provide help to patients. But I still see stuff, uh, and I saw an, an uh, Len, thank you for coming back on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I saw a, a, an article about you in an online publication, I think, called State, or State Something, and it was a lengthy diatribe, and it was just an all-out, unjustified attack on you, and I understand that the editors wouldn't allow you, allow you to rebut. Yes. Actually, uh, the, uh, the it's Stat News, and they um, wrote an article on the documentary that I co-produced, and their major criticism was that um, the only criticism, frankly, is that uh, I did not disclose that I 
I work with pharmaceutical companies and thought that that the lack of dis, that disclosure discredited the documentary. And so I wrote a, I, I, as you just pointed out, I wrote um, uh, an editorial or comment to uh, that particular piece, but they refused to publish it. So uh, I published it somewhere else. Now, and I commented on that uh, on that website and uh, wrote the truth about you that you take care of patients, which is a doctor's responsibility. When I mentioned to the health minister of Canada, who's also a doctor, that the first line of the Hippocratic Oath is, first do no harm. I don't, I, don't know, I, I don't know what the minister's response was. I don't remember. Richard Lawhern, Ph.D., advocate for chronic pain patients in the United States and Canada. Facebook page with more than 40,000 followers. Richard's wife and daughter live with chronic pain. Richard, it's good to have you back on the program. Yes, good afternoon. What's your uh, website? Well, the, most of my publications are on a website called face-facts.org slash Lawhern, L-A-W-H-E-R-N. And uh, I work primarily in Facebook with 40 different groups there who, who uh, total uh, something over 25,000 patients right. and, and family members. Okay, Dr. Webster, what's going on as far as the treatment of pain patients is concerned? Those who are living on the edge of the abyss or just cannot, they cannot live with the pain levels that, uh, that they're forced to live with. And I, I thank you because I put... Uh, someone, and I won't do this on a regular basis because I can't, it's not fair to Dr. Webster, but I was in touch with uh, with one woman in Massachusetts who was just in a horrid state, and you were back to her with, with advice and help in a matter of minutes, so thank you for that. What's the reality for the pain patient, the chronic pain patient, who's on the edge of the pain abyss now? What are they facing when they go to their doctors? What are, they, what are their prospects for being allowed to continue to be taken care of by a system whose mandate supposedly it is to take care of them. Yes. I'll tell you, um, most patients that have moderate to severe pain, particularly those with severe, are struggling to find even a doctor who will treat them. Physicians don't have many options. Insurance companies fail to provide coverage for alternative therapies, and opioids tend to be the only treatment for a large number of these people, and doctors are afraid to prescribe them for fear of losing their license. So patients are really uh, struggling to have uh, access to anybody who will treat them, and if they are going to be prescribed something, they're often prescribed far less than what has been effective for them. Are you considered to be a renegade by, by the system because you take care of your patients? Well, first, let me be clear. I'm not seeing patients anymore. I just do research. But I, I suppose because I'm standing up and trying to be an advocate for uh, patients that um, uh, I, I'm different than for uh, a lot of my colleagues, although I do know a lot of my pain colleagues, uh, uh, physicians, have the same views as me. Mm-hmm. They uh, just are not as vocal. They need to be because people are hurting. People are hurting badly. What's the story in Canada, Marvin, give us the, uh, the, the the background on on your most recent column. Politicians should stay out of health care, and and when they do get involved in health care, as we heard with Minister Philpot, the federal minister of health, on this program, which you are kind enough to reference in your columns, uh, she didn't do very well. Yeah, and I think the problem is you uh, mentioned it at the top of the show or the top of the hour. Um, the opioid deaths and the illegal fentanyl. 
and the government has no clue what to do, uh, or if they do, they don't want to do it. Uh, so they take the easy route, and the easy route is to go after doctors who prescribe opioids and their patients, uh, assuming, of course, that doctors are over-prescribing, and, you know, maybe some of them are, um, but most of them I don't think are. They're uh, writing prescriptions for legitimate reasons, and people are taking prescriptions for legitimate reasons, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the illegal use of drugs uh, by your term as generic drug users. Yeah. Um, but it makes it look like they're doing something. Yeah. And what they're doing is a great deal of harm. What are some of the statistics that they're floating past people? They're just phony and lies. Well, uh, you know, Health Quality Ontario... Uh, did a survey that showed that um, uh, opioid prescriptions are going up. Uh, They really didn't say why they're going up, who they're going to, just that they're going up. And then they floated an anecdote of somebody who became an opioid addict because they had been prescribed opioids, uh, totally nonsensical in the medical world, you know, um, anecdotes do not make evidence. Mm-hmm. And there was no reason for that paper other than uh, possibly to uh, stow some fear in, in people. Um, and then the government goes and it gets a bunch of anti-opioid people and holds a conference with them. Um, that was the conference, I think it was last November, in Ottawa. referred to in Ottawa, where pain doctors were not allowed to be there. Yeah, no agenda. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, they, they have somebody talk about how opioids don't uh, help with pain, and they're highly dangerous. And they continually take statistics that have to do with street drugs and generic drug users or drug addicts, and then they transpose them somehow in a very crafty and sly manner to insinuate that it's the pain patients who are the problem or who are not being helped by the opioids. When the, they won't even listen to the pain patients who are telling them how necessary their pills or their medication is, not because they're hooked on, on the opioids. As I said to the minister, what they're hooked on, what they're addicted to, is living without pain. Well, You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Richard Lawhern, Ph.D., advocate for chronic pain patients in the United States. You see your wife. You see your daughter every day. You see, uh, you you communicate with 40,000 people on a regular basis on Facebook, Richard. How serious a crisis has this become for chronic pain patients? How serious a crisis is it for the ones you love? Well... For the ones I love, my daughter in particular is having enormous problems with her insurance company getting to get coverage for uh, medications that are needed after she's been through three back surgeries. And um, there is just a general suppression of uh, opioid prescription down here south of the border. Uh, Very much the same influences that that, uh, uh, Dr. Webster mentioned and that your other panelists mentioned. Uh, Beyond that, what we are seeing 
is what I believe to be an orchestrated campaign to suppress opioids for the financial gain of people in the op- in the uh, addiction treatment industry. We're seeing a lot of public hype in numerous uh, media outlets down here, and we're seeing junk science being published uh, uncritically that doesn't prove a darn thing except that the people who uh, have written it are uh, doing their absolute darndest to discredit opioids, which are, the, in many cases, the only safe and effective means of treating and managing chronic pain for people who have had absolutely no relief from any other therapy. There's a statistic that I think is very good here, and it's absolutely key to understanding this problem. People say, and they should know better, that three-quarters of all opioid addicts start with prescription drugs. That is an outright lie. What really is the case is that 90% of addicts start when they are a teenager. And in that age bracket, the number of people who have seen a doctor for a prescription for chronic pain is tiny. Literally, the people who are most at risk for addiction are people who can divert drugs either from a family member or from somebody on the street and use drugs that are not under prescription and not under management. The, the drug crisis never was created by prescriptions made by doctors. It was created by diversion of drugs. Okay. Just what I heard there. No, 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 no. This is all important. I mean, we've we've talked about so much about this issue, and we have to come back to the fundamentals. We also have to reach out to areas where we haven't been yet. By the way, can you all stay another ten and fifteen minutes? Sure. 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 All right. Because well, I want to continue. Richard Lawhorn, Dr. Lynn Webster, and Marvin Ross, um, my guests on the issue of chronic pain. Marvin, let me go back to this uh, the, the point that I think is so important. And by the way, I, I spoke just a couple of weeks ago were the mother and uh, a daughter of um, a gentleman in Vermont who took his own life. And it was horrific to hear the mother and daughter explain the path of absolute neglect and lack of interest and lack of focus on those who were supposedly treating him that led him to, to kill himself at age 53. Um, Marvin, let's go back to that, that issue, that, that, that Ottawa conference. Mm-hmm. Why possibly... Would the federal health minister, the Ontario health minister, decide to hold a summit on opioids and say the only people who aren't invited are pain patients and their caregivers? Well, that's a $64,000 question. Um, I guess I would... Doesn't that, doesn't that just answer the whole question about well, what they're up to? <laughs> they don't want reality. They don't want reality. They're it. afraid of reality. Because um, it because it it counter it counters their agenda. Yeah. Well, the bizarre thing, and I, I want to throw this out before I forget, is the chair of the Canadian Guideline Study uh, at McMaster University is a chiropractor. Yeah. Uh, you've had him on your show. I have, Professor Busa. Uh I have tried twice to do an interview with them. And I have not heard back from McMaster Media. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Dr. Webster, Lynn Webster. Lynn, what is the, um, your book and your film are 
titled The Painful Truth. What is the painful truth? Well, the painful truth is that people in pain are being forgotten uh, and that um, they're set aside and not receiving the treatment from physicians or from uh, our political system, our health care systems in both uh, Canada and the U.S. And, and that's the painful truth. They're just plain being forgotten. And it's not difficult to find stories of people who are living in total agony, absolute life-destroying agony. Those stories are everywhere. And it's not that they can't find them. It's simply that they're being ignored. I'd like to ask you, how do we move forward? What's the best way? Lynn, what's the best way to start move for, moving forward? Do the doctors have to become more proactive? Do patients have to become more proactive? I don't think we can count on politicians and the walking lab coats, as I, I, I very unkindly describe some people. Uh, I don't think you can count on them changing their approach. Uh, you know, it's it's going to take some courage from the patients, from the people who and their family and friends um, that know and observe and see uh, how they're being treated. Uh, it, uh, there are uh, there are physicians out there who are trying to advocate for them, like myself. But we are kind of set aside as well because of the political pressure, the economic pressures uh, that uh, payers uh, and the politicians are experiencing and so the only way to really catch a drift and move this forward so that the, that people in pain are treated with dignity uh, is if the people in pain speak up and and demand to be heard that doesn't mean you you're demanding that you have access to opioids uh, far far and away I mean opioids are not a very effective treatment for many uh, many people but they are necessary for a subset of the population if they're going to have uh, uh, a life that's reasonable. If they, if they take away, they, you know, the day I'm talking about, if they take away the op- opioids, what's to stop them from taking away other um, medications and medical assists the people require? That's always my next question. That's not something I want to explore with you, but that's always the next question. Richard, uh, what's the next step? I think the organization thing has to acknowledge a reality, and that is that in the chronic pain population, large numbers are financially destitute. Large numbers are immobilized by uh, the pain that they suffer, and they can't do it alone. So one of the things that is uh, that is uh, that we're trying to start down here in the U.S. is an advocacy program using medical professionals. Uh, bloggers, healthcare writers. I'm associated with a group of about 70 people doing that professionally. We're kind of a uh, almost a one-voice truth squad for uh, contradicting messages in, in the media. And one of the things that we're trying to get underway is a direct confrontation mode. Go interview your legislator's healthcare legislative assistant uh, movement, if you will, rather a long way to put it. We want to have people organize with knowledge at their disposal to schedule appointments with their legislators' uh, staffs and basically tell them face-to-face, your, your boss is killing me, and I want you to stop him. And to do it face-to-face in the, in the legislative offices of the, the people who um, basically should be acting to correct the problems we're having with our local 
Centers for Disease Control and FDA and, and uh, similar agencies. Okay, Marvin, what about Canada? What has to happen? Do we have to have a combined effort with American patients and Canadian patients, or is this a Canadian issue for Canadian patients here? Well, I, I think the issues are a bit different because of the uh, universal health care uh, issue, and I think that a lot of pressure has to be put on the politicians. But part of the problem uh, are the colleges of physicians and surgeons, the self-regulating group, and that's a whole other topic if you ever want to talk about it, how useless they are. Um, But the uh, colleges of physicians and surgeons are the ones putting pressure on doctors who prescribe opioids because they've been given the green light to by the government. So I think it's really a political issue. We have to go after the politicians. And some of the colleges have already started to remove or suspend physicians' right to prescribe narcotics. Yeah, and that's actually not new. Uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons of of Ontario um, has always been very strict about investigating doctors for opioid prescribing. while they uh, they kind of ignore doctors who commit other offenses um, and protect them. Um, but it was somebody on your show who had made the point that the Ontario Ministry of Health had given the names of high-prescribing opioid doctors to the Ontario College for investigation. And, you know, that is just not cricket. I mean, it's, it's just downright reprehensible. Yeah. You know what I would do? And this is just a gut thing. This is not something that's going to happen, but this is a gut thing. I would want to take the federal health minister, Minister Phil Pott, and the Ontario Minister of Health, who doesn't seem to have the courage to call or challenge, Minister Hoskins, and I'd like to put them in a, in a, in a, in a confined area with half a dozen chronic pain patients who've had their medications withheld, and who are trying to get through their days and nights living in agony. I would want the Federal Minister of Health and the Ontario Minister of Health, who are both physicians, to have to sit there and witness it and not reach for a prescription pad and write something out. I'd want them to be there and then publicly describe what they saw. Richard Lawhorn, Dr. Webster, Marvin Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having us. All the best. LenWebsterMD.com is the website, and uh, just look up Richard Lawhern, L-A-W-H-E-R-N, and Marvin Ross, R-O-S-S, health writer for HuffPost Canada. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, our good friend Fran Coombs is the managing editor of RasmussenReports.com. You can sign on to Rasmussen. You can get your daily uh, um, or, or several times a week, you can get your information on what Americans are thinking as far as their political reality is concerned. And Fran is also former editor at the Washington Times. So, Fran, I uh, I was looking for a title, something catchy to, to headline what we're talking about. And I, I came up with chaos at the White House, question mark. So is there some chaos at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue or is it more the reporting that's chaotic? You know, Roy, you know, I wish I had a solid answer on that. I mean, I don't. I, don't th- I think there's no question that President Trump is elevating loyalists. Uh, that he, I think, initially the, the previous nomination, uh, previous appointment, I think, says it all. He 
initially, I think, has tried to play ball with the Republican establishment. Uh, now, when he sees what a pathetic job the Senate Republicans are doing on this Obamacare repeal, uh, I think he is. He's. I think that he, the president, is starting to get really fed up with the the congressional leadership of his own party uh, and the establishment of his own party and. He wants to get things done, and so I think he's surrounding himself now with people who he thinks are mission-oriented, if you will. So this would be the uh, the uh, new White House Chief of Staff, uh, General Kelly, and uh, Mr. Scaramucci. Absolutely, and they both they both have that kind of reputation. Kelly, what does Kelly say? You know, the focus is on the mission, accomplishing the mission. That's what I've always tried to do throughout my career. Scaramucci's reputation. Uh, on Wall Street is a guy who, very tough, is focused on accomplishment, getting things done. We know that that's the way Trump is. Uh, I'm sure Trump is very frustrated with the slow pace in Washington, uh, with the way the legislative process works. He's used to having things say, you know, let's build this thing, let's do it, and getting it done. What was the rationale for firing Reince, uh, Reince Priebus? Uh, Scaramucci was clearly intimating that he, at least publicly, was suggesting that Priebus was a leaker. Yeah, again, you know, we, we perhaps we'll never know whether he was a leaker or not, but certainly Priebus, to his credit, he was he was very loyal to the party and loyal to Trump when Trump became the nominee. And as I said earlier, I think Trump wanted to try to play by the rules, if you will, uh, within the Republican Party, and so that's why he brought Priebus on board to kind of reach out to the Republican establishment and not just have a you know a total uh, bunch of flamethrowers in his administration. But he's I think he's seeing that that's not working. And so whether Priebus is a leaker or not, Priebus is really having has done a very poor job of kind of keeping things together there at the White House. Let's listen to a few words from President Trump. Reince is a good man. John Kelly will do a fantastic job. General Kelly has been a star, done an incredible job thus far, respected by everybody. A great, great American. Reince Priebus, a good man. So a great, great American, General Kelly, and Reince Priebus, a good man. The message is very clear. Uh, How much freedom to operate is General Kelly going to have, and how much would he, do you think, allow himself to be directed by the president? Well, again, again, we'll have to see. I mean, he is, as I said earlier, he's mission-oriented. Right. Uh, he, he's worked in a structure before in the military where he's not always the number one guy. Um, I think he's, he and Trump are very simpatico. Uh, that doesn't mean they won't have disagreements, but I think Kelly knows to keep those disagreements uh, behind the scenes, if you will, or in, uh, and not air them in the pages of the Washington Post. Um, so I would think that there would be less chaos there, but there are a lot of strong-willed people in that crowd, uh, and I hesitate to predict anything. Now, what's going on as far as this Russian investigation is concerned? It continues to bounce and roll along, and nothing really is accomplished. It, Lots of innuendo and no, and no results. Right. It's going Well, basically, at the end of the day, this thing that these, these guys will produce a report which the Democrats will seize on and go, aha, see, that shows it. The Republicans will go, aha, see, there's nothing there. I doubt if anybody will suffer any kind of prosecution. There may be a little wrist slapping or something like that. Um, but first of all, I mean, what did, what did this thing all start about? It all started about basically the Russians 
basically influenced our election. Well, as you know, there hasn't been a scintilla of proof of that. Uh, people have said on the record that not one vote was shifted anywhere in the United States over this. Uh, the Democrats are mostly angry because they want to believe that the Republican government hacked the DN, the Democratic National Committee, and put all those damning emails out there. Uh, now, again, whether the Russian government did it or Russian agents did it or, I mean, I don't know that we will ever know. But the whole Russia, quote, scandal, end quote, is is a lot of innuendo and no proof. My feeling is the Democrats are going to keep this alive as long as they possibly can. Oh, absolutely. They have no agenda. They don't, they, they don't want a result. Right. Well, the National Democratic Party has no agenda. Look, they have a new chairman who's, be, who's best known for dropping four-letter words in public. Uh, their their national fundraising is at historic lows while the republicans are bringing in money hand over fist uh... we the democrats with the media is pump, pumping up all the candidates in every one of these special elections or the democrats lose every single special election uh... the idea right now you know the G, the uh, gdp the latest figure on the gdp in this country is two point six percent if trump keeps the growth rate at that level or better the Democrats don't have a snowball's chance in you-know-where of taking back the House, and they have no chance at all of taking control of the Senate. So, Fran, the question that I was going to ask you then, based on what you're finding out of Rasmussen, is all of what's going on at the White House, uh, all of the headlines, is it starting to have, or not starting to have, but is it having an, uh, an increasingly negative effect on Mr. Trump's uh, popularity or lack of popularity with Americans, we keep hearing that he's got the lowest approval ratings of any president. Yeah, well, he his definitely his approval ratings are going down. But if you look at it, uh, we also did a survey and we asked voters, tell us about the leadership, the congressional leaderships of your party. Okay, the co- Republican congressional leadership among Republican voters ranks far lower than Trump. Republican voters still say by far, by something like two-to-one margin, that they identify more with Trump than with the leaders of their party in Congress. Mm. And meanwhile, Democrats, their opinion of their congressional leaders is also going down, 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 too. So there's nobody in Washington. Yes, Trump's approval rating is definitely going down, but there is no one on the other side or in the Republican Party who is benefiting from that, who is, by contrast, going up. Everybody is going down together. It was interesting that Schumer said, uh, essentially, let's stop blaming the Russians. Let's stop blaming uh, whatever th- you can you can you can come up with. Let's take respon. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, probably weakly. Right. Uh, let's start looking where the responsibility for losing the election lies, and that essentially was the candidate. Right, and the, but the candidate, as we know, has a new book coming out in September in which she says, I take full responsibility for losing the election, but meanwhile, the reason I lost the election was Comey, the Russians, sexism, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so as long as Hillary Clinton keeps this, uh, as long as Hillary Clinton stays in the public eye, the Republicans have a big, I mean, the Democrats have a big problem. Yeah. I just see this as a book with an unlimited number of sequels. Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, th- this this woman cannot get over herself. I mean, face it, she thought she was going to go down in American history as the first woman president twice, and instead she's going to go down in history as a two time loser. Yeah, she thought she thought about it, she thought that twice that she was going to be the first woman right. president, and, and that's that's not the legacy that she leaves, and she just you know it, it that you know that that is just killing. Oh her. yeah, yeah. Fran, thank you so much for the time. 
Always a pleasure, Roy. All the best. Fran Coombs from uh, RasmussenReports.com. You can, again, you can get your uh, your, your weekly uh, uh, fix of uh, numbers and information from Rasmussen. Just sign up for their newsletters online. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It has been a global issue with the Pope involved, with President Trump involved, with British courts involved, including the Supreme Court of the U.K., with uh, doctors and hospitals and medical ethicists, and, of course, the parents of little Charlie Gard, 11 months old. There's been global opinion on what should or should not have happened with Charlie Gard. Well, his parents have decided to stop fighting the doctors, the politicians, and the courts, and are allowing Charlie to die of his fatal genetic disease. He has brain damage, is blind, unable to see or hear, cannot breathe without life support. And then the question becomes, is this child better off dead? Is anybody better off dead? Is that a cruel or is it a sensible question at times? Dr. Arthur Kaplan is bioethicist and head of the Division of Medical Ethics at the NYU School of Medicine. His column in the New York Daily News, After Charlie Gard, Learning Tough Truths. And Dr. Kaplan is the author of Many excellent books, and you know what my favorite of yours is, Dr. Kaplan, because it's so true. Smart mice, not so smart people. <laughs> it's just a wonderful title. Did that title just come to you? It did, although uh, it took some careful observation of mice and people. <laughs> well, let's give the mice their credit. <laughs> um, do you know what uh, what sort of schedule might be involved with uh, little Charlie Gard? I don't want to be macabre. Hey, hey by the way, yeah, I do. He has died. He, oh, he has died. died. <clears throat> he went to a hospice this weekend, and he has died. All right. So his parents decided that they, they would fight no longer. Um, was that always going to be the outcome? I mean, they had to make that decision in order for this to happen, did they not? They did. Um, I think, it, you know, I do think it was always going to be the outcome. Charlie was so damaged from his genetic disease. He has a very rare, almost always lethal at birth disease. A few kids, maybe a dozen, have lived up to a year or two with it. But I think his fate was sealed because we don't really know how to treat it, even experimental ideas are purely researched. They're, they're, they've never really been tested or shown any efficacy in what specifically he had. So I think uh, technology could have kept him going a little bit longer on a ventilator and with intensive care, but he wasn't ever going to uh, get past his first or second birthday. You and I talked about uh, Charlie Gard a few weeks ago, and after that uh, conversation, I received a few emails that uh, sort of have the same general sense, and that is that when when calls start to go out for the ending of a life of a, a baby like Charlie Gard, that the concern is the parental rights have been weakened by mm-hmm. politicians, by courts, and by doctors. And when I replied, well, look, if you just disconnect the life support system and and life runs its course, Charlie would die fairly quickly. And that was not accepted. It was just, you know, Roy, parental rights have been weakened by the politicians, the courts, and by doctors. Well, I don't know that they've been weakened. I think they've always been limited, not extremely limited. Don't get me wrong. Parents get a lot of say. But, Roy, you know this. You've had cases in Canada where a parent has said, I'm not going to treat my child with medicine. I'm going to pray. Right. You've had cases in Canada, we've had them in the U.S. too, where people have said, I'm going to pursue alternative medicine. Right. I'm not going to treat that cancer. I'm going to go to a And fairly or, recently. Yeah, yeah. The state has always limited parental rights if 
it is believed that the parents are doing something that will harm the child. That is, that, that the course they're taking just isn't going to turn out to be in the child's best interest. What was different about Charlie is the parents wanted to do everything. The state was in the position of saying, enough, there's no more to do. I think that limit is appropriate, too, sometimes. It does have to be subjected to court review, and this one was by many courts who all agreed, because sometimes parents can try to continue in the face of uh, futility. They don't understand there's nothing more to do. You could run the machine, but if you're leaving your little child suffering or in pain, that's not appropriate. The more complex and successful modern medicine becomes, the more difficult the question, I think, is anyone better off dead because... Well, let me say, you know, no court really likes to say someone is better off dead than alive, but there are situations, and I've seen them firsthand, Someone's in horrible pain, we can't control what's happening to them, or they're just at the end of life and they're saying, why are you continuing to resuscitate me? I don't want to go on in this state, I can't move. People have uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, or a stroke that locks them inside their bodies, they feel trapped. There can be fates worse than death, there's no doubt about that in my mind, and sometimes I think we have to accept that medicine runs out of ideas, And when it's prolonging life, in a few instances, not many, but in a few, it can be cruel. It can be downright cruel to the patient. You're just leaving them in in a terrible condition and prolonging their life. And that's what the doctors at the Great Ormond Hospital, a very good children's hospital, by the way, in London, felt was going on with Charlie. Mm -hmm. The more successful modern medicine becomes, the more um, cures are found, and the more we hear talk about people not necessarily ever dying, right. that, you know, that, that life will go on forever, the more significant, I think, this, this questions that surround a Charlie Gard are going to, are going to have to be, become, because you're, setting, uh, you're, you're drawing a map for the future, and, and people will become more intensely involved emotionally, people who have no direct uh, involvement. Close to $2 million was raised through internet crowdfunding right. for Charlie Gard's parents, right? And some of his doctors and nurses received death threats. There's a tremendous amount of emotion involved here. Huge amounts. And by the way, another lesson from Charlie is in Canada, in the U.S., in the U.K., who's going to pay for the next Charlie Gard? So if you say, well, things must continue um, at the expense of the Ontario health system, at the expense of U.S. private insurance, at the expense of the National Health Service. So Charlie's parents raise money a lot, and that's great. But future Charlies may not be able to command the same compassion, get the same attention. You and I, Roy, both know that if there was another Charlie Guard Tomorrow morning, there wouldn't be as media coverage in the same way because people get exhausted of that. It's not Mm -hmm. news anymore. You're Mm -hmm. not likely to raise the same kind of money anymore. So if we want a system that gives people access to very long shots or ridiculous long shots, who's paying? There's been no, you know, we just went through the health reform discussion here. We didn't have one word about who's paying. Donald Trump said, I want to help Charlie but he didn't say he wanted to help American kids who need money uh, to get access to anything. There wasn't a nickel budgeted uh, in Obamacare or the repeal or anything like that. And the same problem besets the Canadian system. Money is the biggest obstacle. Parents who are listening to this can tell you that uh, 
kids with severe diseases and disabilities face in getting access to experimental and unproven care. So that's a big challenge. I was also going to say we hype ourselves in healthcare into these problems in part because who hasn't seen or heard an ad that says, you know, we've got precision medicine or immunotherapy or some wondrous thing and we'll fix anything, right? It's come here. We'll oh, sure. we can fix it. Yeah. But it isn't quite true. Medicine has a limited arsenal. It loses to death all the time. I'm sometimes uh, of the opinion that people in North America think death is an option. They can decide whether they want to go do that or not. <laughs> I think that's actually becoming a fact now. I mean, people do, not that it's, that is a fact, but people are actually thinking that. Exactly. Yeah. It's just not true. You, you know, I, we did a little study a couple of years ago here at NYU. The best place to get resuscitated, CPR, do you know where it is? No. It's on television. About 90%, 95% of people recover. The real world number is 7%. <laughs> so, you know, it's in our media, it's in our films, sure. it's in our advertising, it's in our marketing. Um, we're going to fight death and defeat death. And, you know, it, it isn't true, and but it does give people... I don't know, false hope yeah. uh, that that if their grandma or their kid is really in dire straits somewhere, somehow, somebody's got the cure. Like television, uh, 421, uh, police detectives go looking for trouble, 422, they find it. Yeah. Should there be a checklist of diseases and conditions which may require a withdrawal life support decision? Or is there one? You know, there kind of is one. Um, when we see somebody, for example, who's had, and this would be true anywhere, at, at hospitals around North America, you've had, a, uh, say you're in your 90s, you've had five or six heart attacks, arrests, you've got multiple other diseases, dementia, that's a profile. If you have another heart attack, they're not going to try and resuscitate you. <clears throat> they're going to let you go because they figure your heart is failing. We could resuscitate, maybe get another couple of hours of life, but it's pointless <coughs> if you're suffering from complete cognitive uh, impairment. There's, no, you know, you can't say to us, "Well, I want another hour. I'd like to do something in the next 15 minutes," and we start to hurt you. We open your chest up, we pound on you, we make you miserable. So, yeah, there are informal rules that sort of say, "Look, every," let's put it this way, it shocks people to hear this, but. Everybody who dies of heart failure, a decision is made not to try to resuscitate them. Because you could do it for every person. Mm -hmm. Might get another 30 seconds, might get another minute. But at some point you have to say, we're not doing that anymore. We've done nine attempts. I will tell you this, little kids get more efforts at heart resuscitation than 95-year-olds. But uh, those are kind of informal rules. Yeah. In, in medicine, is the issue of resuscitation or level of care at all a generational one, do older doctors more willingly subscribe to allowing a child like Charlie Guy to die than, mm. say, medical students? I'll tell you, it's, it's not age. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's partly religious background. There are people more conservative and think I've got to try and try and try until the patient sort of defeats me, you know, almost gets around what I can do. Mm -hmm. You do see it culturally. I think the U.K., for example, is more willing to accept limits than Canada or the U.S., just is, um, for whatever reason, they're culturally more, and so is Sweden and some of the other European countries. I think one other factor is money. Um, you look at the U.S. and Charlie guards, when they have money, they get places. When they're poor, they don't get nearly as far as Charlie in any, by, from, on the part of any doctor. Yeah. 
quite a quite an, an emotional story. I mean, even for people who were not involved, and that's millions of people around the world, mm. it's it 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 tugs at you. And 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 you're absolutely correct. From this experience, we have to we actually have to benefit from the experience collectively. I think so, and I think again, <clears throat> my belief is you have to understand that medicine has limits. It just does. It can't do everything, can't solve everything. People will say to me, but then how do you advance? Mm-hmm. Well, you do have to do research. I'm not saying that. But saying you want to experiment on a dying baby is not the same as saying you're going to treat a dying baby. So we don't want to open the floodgates and let anybody try anything uh, on a dying baby. But um, it's that that's an indication of a limit. There's monetary limits. They just are. Raising $2 million to fly Charlie around the world is not going to happen for every Charlie. You know, Canada is not going to throw its door open to every sick kid in Bolivia, Ethiopia, Afghanistan. There are plenty of other Charlies out there who could use better health care, but they're, they're not going to be paid for it. And that's a limit. That's yeah. a reality. And then we also have to realize that sometimes medicine can hurt you. We don't talk about that much, but prolonging life when you're suffering, when you've got disseminated cancer, when you're emotionally or spiritually bereft, that isn't always in somebody's best interest. All right. Dr. Kaplan, thank you. It's always good talking to you. Hey, my pleasure. All the best. Dr. Arthur Kaplan, uh, bioethicist, and uh, he is the head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. There's a court case underway in British Columbia. The federal government is spending major taxpayer dollars arguing the government has no social contract with the men and the women of Canada's military. The lawsuit began when Stephen Harper was prime minister, and it continues with Justin Trudeau in that role. We spoke with members of the lawsuit and their lawyer just a couple of weeks ago. Major Mark Campbell is one of the former CF members suing Ottawa. He lost both legs in an IED ambush in Afghanistan. So again, the federal government says it has no social contract with the men and the women in uniform. We don't owe you a thing. You know, we have our plans for you, but we're, we, don't have, we don't owe you anything. Essentially, that's what they're saying. I want you to hear about Private Leah Green today. She died just a few days ago. And I'd spoken about Private Green with Sergeant Major Barry Westholm, retired some years ago. Barry was in the military for more than 30 years. And uh, he became a friend and an advisor and protector to Private Green, and he's with us today. Hi, Barry. Hello, Barry. Yeah, how's it going? Can you hear me? Yeah, just uh, I'll ask you to tell us about Private Green in a moment. Also with me is uh, Cassandra Desmond. Ms. Desmond's brother Lionel, a retired corporal in the Canadian Forces, was battling PTSD and post-concussion syndrome following a tour of duty in Afghanistan in 2007. Corporal Desmond, in January of this year, took his own life. His wife, his mother, and his daughter were also found dead. Corporal Lionel Desmond was always described as a kind, gentle, giving, and funny man, Yet after his tour in Afghanistan, his terrible stress, his post-traumatic stress disorder and post-concussion syndrome were not properly treated in his home province of Nova Scotia when Corporal Desmond sought help. It wasn't there for him. Cassandra Desmond is with me. Hi, Cassandra. Hi, Roy. How are you? I'm good. I'm, and thanks for joining us today. And, and, and absolutely condolences to you and your family on your terrible loss. Thank you, Ray. And Barry, condolences uh, to you and the military family on the loss of Corporal Green. I, I know there's you want to you want to tell us about the corporal, and she she wanted her story to be to be uh, shared with Canadians. 
yes, Roy, uh, she had the, the feeling long time ago that she was going to end up deceased and that she was going to be um, ending up that way at the hands of the military and the support systems that were intended to support her. So um, during our long conversations, I knew her for quite a few years, uh, she asked me if that should ever uh, come to be to tell her story. So um, that's part of the reason why I'm here today is to do just that. Mm-hmm. So, so tell us about her and, and, and what, what, what we need to know. Okay, Roy. Well, um, first, thanks for having me on my show. I'd like to start by sending my condolences to the Green family. My thoughts have never been far from them, and they're focused on them now for sure. You know, uh, one would uh, think that over the years, the steady stream of service uh, member and veteran-related tragedies would have been enough to send the government and the Canadian Armed Forces leaping into action to address them. And certainly, if not by the stream of tragedies alone, then most certainly by the tragedy of the Desmond family in Nova Scotia, which I believe impacted all Canadians. Um, and, and this being the case, too, I'd like to thank Cassandra Desmond for coming on your show. Her family is giving so much already uh, that their continued effort in speaking to the, about their trials, uh, to me, is nothing less than heroic. Um, so getting to the point here, the situation that the Green family faced did not have to be. And in order to uncomplicate their situation for your listeners, most importantly, your civilian listeners, I'm going to begin with an analogy. Only take a couple of minutes. Sure. Okay, uh, picture, if you will, an enormous brownstone building with very few doors on it, but an adequate number of windows for those inside to see out. That building is the Canadian Armed Forces for the purpose of this analogy. And the two doors on it I'm going to discuss today are the in and the out doors. Now, before you can use the indoor, you have to take a battery of tests. And if you pass, then swear an oath. And with that oath, and this is important, Roy, willingly suspend your Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Then... And only then can you venture inside that building. Now, once inside, you'll find a unique and separate society awaiting you, a society with its own rules, its own clothing, its own accommodation, its own gyms, its own shopping centers, air, sea, and land transport, its own communications, Roy, its own language, its own health care system, and very importantly, too, its own laws, its own police, its own courts, its own judges, its own schools, and the list goes on. All of these are there to focus the soldier on one thing and one thing only, protecting that area they just left outside the building, the area known as Canada. And with that, it's civilian society. Mm -hmm. But before the recruit can participate in military society, they must first be indoctrinated so that they can fully understand and function in it. This indoctrination is the first of many a soldier will take over their career, and it's known as basic military qualification, or better known to the civilians out there as basic training. At basic training... The Canadian Forces expends a great deal of time, money, and effort in breaking down the civilian individual and building up a military team member, complete with the military skills and the mindset required to kill another human being, which is, once again, this is very serious stuff, and they take it very seriously. Only when they pass this rigorous training, anywhere up to 13 weeks, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, are they permitted to move into the military society, and once there, they receive combat gear, their weapons, and continuous military and skills training throughout their careers. They will also use those skills when called upon, whether in war fighting, aid to civil powers, keep peacekeeping, or what have you. However, military society is an unforgiving one, so if you won't or can't do what they ask of you, or like, so for example, if you don't have a proper haircut or your shoes aren't polished properly, then you face immediate corrective measures. They do not mess around. It's very strict, and it's strict for a reason. If you become injured to a point you can't physically or mentally be on a battlefield, then you are sent out of the military society, and that's the second door in this massive building I'm going to touch on. The outdoor of military society, 
provides little preparation for what awaits the soldier once they pass through it. All that D and reconstruction that they went through at basic training that was built upon and honed through them throughout their careers remains firmly in place just prior to departure. In many cases, soldiers stand in front of that outdoor not fully understanding what's waiting for them on the other side. And just before they depart, they return their combat gear, return their weapons they're taken out of uh, stock of, and their processing out is concluded with hopefully a ceremony to mark their departure. And with that, out they go, basically as soldiers in civilian clothes, or what we call veterans. The Canadian Forces are aware there's a problem with the system, and they have been directed for years, actually over a decade, to maintain contact with ex-soldiers to such a time as they fit in civilian society. But when a veteran looks back at the building they left, that great big brown building with all the windows, they'll find that all the blinds are drawn, and no one from the Canadian Forces is providing that oversight. They are alone, lest one organization meant to assist them, Veterans Affairs Canada, or VAC. VAC is situated almost exclusively outside that large building called the Canadian Forces, and a great many of their employees don't understand those they are meant to support. In many cases, they are downright scared of them, as can be seen by the amount of security you'll find in a VAC office. And Roy, there's more security in a VAC, VAC office than you'll find in a bank. Wow. In, mili in military society, they speak in acronyms and shortened phrases. This is part of the special military language. They do this to keep the speaking to the minimum and the activity to a maximum. So when a phrase like contact weighed out is heard on the radio, everybody knows what exactly is happening out there, and that means basically the enemy has been engaged by friendly forces. The soldiers also train not to abuse military resources. If they request something, they damn well better need it, or they may be punished, or worse, cost lives. This being the case, they only make requests when it's absolutely necessary and when the request is sent, those on the receiving end move with equal urgency because they know that that request is serious and well-founded. Many civilians and fact staff don't understand this part of the military mentality. So when a veteran such as Leon Green or Lionel Desmond request help, it's not to be taken lightly. They do so as a soldier. These soldiers have been trained a certain way, and they are not untrained on release. They expect, then, a certain response. When a veteran asks for assistance in a, in a hospital emergency ward, they don't make this request lightly, but only after great consideration that it is truly urgent. And they expect the same response they would have gotten the Canadian Forces because that's how they've been trained. They do not expect to be told to sit in a waiting room for six hours or call 911. But that's what's happening. And that's part of the reason we have another tragedy. The CAF is not fulfilling their responsibilities in the transitioning out of soldiers, and then posterly follow-up and Veterans Affairs Canada is ill-prepared to understand their clients and meet their needs. And that pretty much is the backgrounder for, I think, what's happening in a lot of areas, Roy, certainly in dealing with Leah Green. Uh, Veterans Affairs Canada were very lackadaisical in dealing with what was obviously an urgent situation. Uh, and over and over again, I told them, this is a very highly complex, critical case. You've got to move. And right. basically, they didn't. Well, we can talk about what they didn't do in a, in a minute, uh, Barry, and thank you for that. In really incredible insight into what being in the military is like, what it means, and what happens when you leave that, uh, that building. Cassandra, as you listen to Barry describe what, uh, and Barry's also living with PTSD, and we owe him so much because he's fought for this country for more than 30 years and, 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 and fought for the, the rights of, and continues to fight for the rights of, of veterans and for, for active yeah. military. Cassandra, as you're listening to, uh, to Barry, you're thinking of your brother, you're thinking of what 
your brother who left and then the brother who came back. What are the thoughts that came to mind? You know, uh, just listening to Barry and as he's describing those in and out doors, you know, and uh, based on our previous conversation earlier today that we had, you know, as I explained, like, my brother, when we seen him, like, you know, he come home and explaining, like, you know, I want to go into the Army. Like, as he described my brother as the happy-go-lucky, gentle person that he is, like, he was such a people person and just loved people. We just didn't see him as going to, like, the Army, like, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but that was his dream, and that's what he wanted to do. And, you know, just having other honorable veterans within our family, he felt that that was his call. Mm-hmm. So we respected that, and that's what he wanted to do, and that's what he did. It wasn't long after, you know, that when he went in, did his training, signed his oath, like Gary, like uh, Barry explained there, you know, the indoor, he went through all that, the basic training, and did all that. You know, and then he come home after all that, and it's, I'm going to war. I'm going to Afghanistan, you know. And then just seeing him go there, and when he come back, he was a total different person. Like, you could just see, like, there were days where, like, he would be that happy-go-lucky guy that we knew, but then there were days where it was like, you know, what's going on here kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and he had just, he had severe PTSD. Yeah, yeah, and just not knowing all that and then coming to, like, you know, the knowledge of that and finding that and just, you know, just seeing him as he was and coming back and everything, it just wasn't the same. But then we didn't really realize until the tragedy had happened and then we took on, like, you know, basically his case ourselves, and, like, getting to know this knowledge and to find out what went wrong and what had happened. And at the end of the day, everything just leads back to my brother being one of those people that fell through the cracks because of Veterans Affairs. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Sergeant Major Barry Westholm and uh, Cassandra Desmond are my guests on The Roy Green Show. Uh, Barry, when it comes to Leah Green, what was she battling and how did the system fail her? Well, Leah Green was, was a victim actually of the system. The system rode, rode over her and her family like a, a tank. Um, the JPSU um, from the beginning was understaffed, undertrained, under just about everything, and that was the unit that was designed to transition people smoothly out that outdoor and hang with them for a little while out on the civilian side of the, the fence to make sure everything was going smoothly and that, that things were going well for them as a civilian and that Veterans Affairs Canada was providing the necessary uh, benefits and support. And if they weren't, they could, they could go and tell Veterans Affairs Canada, listen, our soldiers out there, civilian now, needs your help, you've got to go help them. None of that's taken place. They undermanned it to a degree where it became dangerous. And the people that went through it, rather than being helped, many, many, many left quite hurt and bewildered and standing out there in that beautiful country called Canada, bewildered. Leah was one of them. She was just trashed about, asked for help constantly, uh, had people offer it to her, and the only obstacle to getting that help to Leah was Veterans Affairs Canada. And that was just only a month ago. Are you surprised that she's, that she's gone? No. She made, she convinced me that this was going to happen sometime. She, I, I kept arguing with her. I said, you know, Leah, what you're dealing with, you're dealing with an overtasked system, and you're basically good people. And she goes, oh, no, Barry. She goes, not to this point. She goes, you watch what's going to happen to me. And she said, 
they're out to get me and they want me dead. And I, of course, I didn't believe her. And as time went on, the amount of things that happened to her, and I hope there's an investigation into what happened to her, I, I came around to believing what she said. Yeah, I listened to one phone call. I wasn't impressed with what I heard. No, there, there's just a bureaucratic quagmire, yeah. and the veterans get stuck in it and drown. Yeah, and you were part of that call. Yes. Yeah. Boy, I, I mean, I, Representing her interests. It's surreal. Yeah, because yeah. I say uh, I've got, I had to record some of these calls because I didn't think anybody would believe me. Yeah. When I'm talking to VAC, the response I get, so I do have those. Yeah, and I and I have one as well. Cassandra, did you have any sense of what was really happening to your brother as as he was spiraling downward with this PTSD and and not receiving the help that that he needed? It wasn't really until, like, like I said, like, you know, like, we notice a change, like, in him and his characteristics and the person that he was, like, you know, when he come home and stuff. Um, but it didn't fall to us until, like, you know, the last final months, basically, of his life. And what I mean by that is, like, seeing the downhill spiral, like, we've seen, like, the effects of it because, like, you know, he basically was growing tired of crying for help and looking for help and just taking all the routes that he possibly could think of and, like, you know, know of to go and basically uh, not being able to get the help to the full potential of these people that were trying to help him because of the fact that they needed certain records and stuff, which falls in the hands of Veterans Affairs Canada. So his records were who knows where, and... And so he couldn't get the help that he required. And if he'd had that help, he might still be alive today, probably would be alive today. I, I was, Correct. And I do believe that. And, and Barry, if, uh, if Private Green had received the help she required? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll put another, another uh, look at this. Leah Green did have all the information provided to VAC. I provided it. Mm-hmm. They had briefings that were pages and pages long based on my historical connections, including doctor statements, psychologists, uh, therapists, all stating this was a critical, critical case, mm-hmm. and she still couldn't get support. So here's, so, the, here's the final question for you then, because, uh, and we're, we're going to talk about this. I'm, I'm going on a little vacation, but when we come back, we have to talk again. Um, are there others? Are there other um, Lionel Desmonds and, and Leah well, Greens well, out there? What I've said to the Canadian Forces since November, they have to now look back at everybody that's released through the Joint Personnel Support Unit, mm-hmm. who was released injured from the Canadian Forces, find them like they never should have let them go anyway. They're always supposed to uh, maintain contact, reach out, have back reach out backwards to find these people and see how they're yeah. doing and help. Yeah. Barry, thank you for everything you've done. Cassandra, again, condolences to you and your family for what you've had to experience. You're very brave uh, to come and speak out and speak on behalf of other veterans who are maybe slipping through those cracks, and I I hope we can speak again. Well, Roy, like I said, you know, uh, we need to stop the cries for the help. You know, something needs to be done and change needs to occur, and I be damned if I'm going to see another situation or a tragic situation like my family is facing still to this day occur to another family because Veterans Affairs Canada allowed another honorable soldier fall through the cracks. We'll talk again. We'll talk again. Thank you, Cassandra. Thank you, Barry. The Canadian forces need leadership, like Cassandra just said. That's leadership. We'll talk soon. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.